cults, coercion, and sexuality in society. These are the topics for The Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more. Welcome to episode 56 of Frankie Files Podcast. I'm Frankie Tease. Our special guest today is Dr. Clint Haycock. We are going to dive into Christian evangelism with his PhD holder of Bible studies, as well as mystical manipulation, God's economy, which the Bible portends, dominion theology, opus Dei, liberal versus evangelical Christianity, and Dr. Clint's own personal story. Clint is a third-generation evangelical, previous man of the cloth, who dedicated he and his family's life to the book before walking away. He preached for many years in Portland, Oregon, and was raised in the area. He then went to the UK to obtain the PhD from University of Chester, New England. He left the faith about 10 years ago, publicly deconstructing on his podcast, The Mind Shift. Now an expatriate in the UK, Clint's very public deconstruction has helped many. He's an international metal rock and roll and blues drummer, as well as a dad. Dr. Haycock takes us through his harrowing story and why we should be concerned about Dominion theology. He now uses his platform to caution the devout against extremism, even helping highlight dangerous preachers in great detail, with help from current preachers, who he's friends with. Pretty amazing. I'm pleased to have this adult cult kid on the show and share his thoughts and his story. Please welcome Dr. Haycock and file this interview under Christian Evangelism. I got married and then we had a couple of kids while we were in Portland. I was going to Bible college and then seminary. So yeah, then I became the el- an elder and then a pastor of a church in the south, just south of Portland in Milwaukee, Oregon. It was called uh, Northgate Community Church, but it's gone now. It actually closed. Um, yeah, so that's a whole other backstory there. We actually closed that church down because it was going to head toward an ugly church split. So we shut it down <laughs> just before I moved to the UK. And then I came to the UK. I did a PhD over here. And the goal was to sort of get into academics and become a like a Bible college or professor at a seminary, something like that. But I was already in the process of deconstructing, questioning a lot of things. And then when we came to the UK, that was, you know, kind of the last straw the next couple of years. And then I just officially walked away from the faith probably 10, 11 years ago now. Can you define what is evangelical for our listeners? So I'm an ex-evangelical or ex-evangelical. IFB is independent fundamental Baptist or fundamentalist Baptist. I grew up in the Church of Christ in the Seattle area. So that was, it was a very kind of a fundamentalist church, but I wouldn't say it was as far as the IFB. That's the real serious fundamentalist there. 
pretty conservative, like I say, if not edging toward fundamentalists. That was the faith I grew up in. But I was also, my parents were part of a, what I consider to be a cult, which was a guy named Bill Gothard. I don't know if you've come across his name in any of your cult research, but he was a huge figure back in the probably 1970s through the 80s and into the early 90s in Christianity in America. And he used to do like week-long seminars in various cities around the country. He had a massive following. He had, he had a homeschooling and Christian school arm. They have all kinds of ministries that they do out of what's it's called. It's called Institute and Basic Youth Conflicts. When I was a kid, now it's called IBLP Institute and Basic Life Principles. He's no longer the head of it. He he resigned or was sacked, I guess you could say, out of the off the back of several sexual abuse scandals that finally became too much, and they got rid of him. But his content is still out there. And so I was raised in that, and I would I would very much say that was a cult environment I was born in. And that's the thing I've, I've since I've done a lot of work on cults, cult psychology, cult tactics, and things like that. I've realized there is a difference between people who were born in versus what you might call first generation. Let's say someone who becomes a, a member of a cult or a religion at some point later in their life, you know, versus the first generation versus second or third generation those of us that were born into it, like you said, it was totally normalized and we just accepted it all as true. We never had like an alternative re, um, reality or independent sort of self. We, o- we only ever had the religious identity, you know, that was so now when I leave, when people leave a cult or a faith, the faith that they were born into, it's a lot harder work because you had no pre-religious identity. And my grandparents on my dad's side, they were longtime Christians and my dad was a Christian. My parents became, you know, so probably at least third generation, you know, so it goes back a long ways. I've, I've since discovered that on my dad's side over here in England, they were Quakers back in the 16th, 17th century, you know, so it goes back a long, long ways. You know, I've, I've done a lot of family history. Now that I live over here, it's quite easy to do, I guess. I, w- I wasn't homeschooled, but I started, I was in public school up until fourth grade. And then from fifth grade on, I switched over to a tiny little Christian school just south of Seattle, Washington. And then I went all the way through that. And then I switched over to a Christian high school. So I graduated from a Christian high school. So I wasn't homeschooled, but I was like the next thing to it, really, in that environment, really. You got to go back to about the late 19th century. So there was all this German sort of liberal theology creeping into the very conservative church. And off the back of that, there was a sort of a counter reaction to the liberalism that was creeping into sort of mainstream Orthodox Christianity. And in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there arose this movement called the fundamentalists. And they were the ones who were very militant. They were fighting against sort of liberal theology. And so they were the ones who kind of started that movement. Now, uh, that they were so militant and so you know angry uh, there was another sort of a later movement. This is going back to probably the 1930s and then into the 40s and 50s, where it was a, a softening of the real fundamentalist position. And that would be your classic sort of evangelical. They're more of a centrist position as opposed to the hardcore militant fundamentalists. I recently interviewed a friend of mine, Bruce Geringser. I'm trying to pronounce his name right, but... He's a former IFB pastor of over 30 years, and he was a full-on, and they would say it's a King James-only type church. You know, they would say 
that is the only Bible that's, you know, inspired and errant and infallible and blah, blah, blah. But I was raised in a slightly less constrictive tradition. So we we could read like the New American Standard or New International Version, you know, so we had a little bit more liberty there, I guess you could say. Oh, I would say it's very, very different here, which is one of the reasons why I love living in this country, because it's a lot, yeah, it's a lot more secular. Um, you know, there's been numerous studies done over the years that show that in the UK, places like here, places like Australia, the religious population is declining, while at the same time, the sort of non-affiliated, the nuns, you know, they call them, we have no religious affiliation, that's growing so they're declining while we're growing, and we're almost like in, like I say in Australia and UK, parts of Europe, it's almost fifty fifty, you know, very very different than the United States. It's such a different. When I go back to the states, I'm just shocked at you know how many churches there are in every street corner, and there's Christians everywhere, Christians in government, not like that at all here. Yeah, I did a PhD in basically biblical studies and preaching. My goal was to become like a professor of preaching. But I was an Old Testament guy, so I studied Greek and Hebrew when I was in seminary and Bible college. You know, so I had a background in theology, biblical studies, things like that. Which is funny because my girlfriend says, looking back on it now, it's really a degree in nothing. You know, I mean, it's it's all about a religion, about a God that may or may not even exist. You know, yeah, she's kind of like, yeah, that was a lot of money and a lot of time spent on <laughs> on really nothing. It's it doesn't do me any good now as a as I, I'm in a completely different vocation. That PhD does is not worth the paper it's printed on, even though it's a legitimate, you know, it's not like a, a phony place. I went to an actual university. It's accredited, you know, and all that. Uh, but it's just one of them. It's part of the journey. Really cost me. I mean, is I'm divorced now. We were divorced maybe a couple, three years ago, my ex-partner and I. And part of that was the religious component to our whole marriage because we were married, you know, almost 30, over 30 years ago now. And, you know, it was all part of being a minister, being a pastor, being a Bible college teacher. All of our married life was spent, you know, by me going to Bible college seminary, spending all the available money on tuition fees and books and not being able to work and scrimping and, you know, just squeaking by. And that did have a long-term effect ultimately on the marriage. So that that's another legacy of this whole, you know, journey, I guess you could say. It's funny because I, when I went to Greece, I went to Rhodes a few years ago on holiday, and I, I thought I'll, I'll be able to get by because I know how to read Greek. <laughs> no, no, it's different. I could read the signs, but I couldn't. I didn't know the vocabulary because it's you know it's modern Greek. The Greek I learned is is like first century Koine Greek that the New Testament was written in. You know, so it's 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 a dead language. You know, so it didn't really help me at all. I thought I was going to have a leg up on all my you know tourist buddies, but no, I didn't. <laughs> So even then it didn't help me. So in your deconstruction, which I understand was very public, clearly critical thinking navigated you from your lifelong belief, your born in belief. How did that begin? How did that, you said you went to study, you're a doctor. So tell us what degree you obtained, what level and what it was studying. So as an academic, I was obviously taught critical thinking skills. You had to write 
a hundred thousand word doctoral dissertation doing all that took me, you know, between three and four years to do all the research and writing to produce this basically a book length doctor, you know, doctoral thesis. And in the process of that, it was a research PhD, you know, so I'm doing all this research and my supervisor, I went to the university of Chester, which is up in the Northwest of England. And he was very good at sort of getting me to question my presuppositions. You know, he would say, are you sure you want to say that? You know, I would write a paragraph and have some sort of dogmatic assertion, you know, and then I would go, well, where is that coming from? Why, why am I saying that? And I realized that's just my sort of fundamentalist background just coming out. And I think, my God, you know, why am I saying that? Why, you know, do I actually believe that? Well, no, I don't really believe that. And I would sort of jettison these little pieces along the way, you know, but I'd also had a very negative experience. You know, that church that I was mentioning in Portland um, south of Portland, that church actually closed down. We closed it down. I came out of that experience just before we moved to the UK. I was completely burned out. I was burned. I was absolutely fried. And so that was part of the deconstructive deconstruction process too, because it really got me to question, you know, wait a minute, I've been spending all of this time, money, effort, energy, going to Bible college, seminary, doing all the things that I thought God wanted me to do. And then this is how it ended in sort of like ashes the church closed down. The church I'd spent 12 years putting my blood, sweat, and tears, working 70, 80 hours a week to try to keep it going, closed. You know, and I was really disillusioned by that whole thing. So there was a personal part of it as well. It wasn't just all academics and critical thinking. I was burned out, and it really got me to question the reality of God and why, you know, suffering and all these other kind of things as well. Yeah, I did burn out. Uh, I realize that now, and that was part of what I was saying about how it affected my family. Because my two, I've got two daughters, and they both live over in this country. We've had a lot of conversations about that time, you know, eight or ten years where I was. It wasn't just me; it was me and my ex too. We were working like absolute crazy, trying to keep the church going, trying to grow the church, trying to make things happen, killing ourselves really, and putting them, you know, second, third, and fourth down the line. And that wasn't right, but we thought we were doing it all for God, you know, and in the end, what do you get out of it? Nothing but a broken marriage. And, you know, well, luckily I've got a good relationship with my daughters, but it took a lot of work to, to make sure that was okay. And luckily they're neither one of them are religious, you know, so we got that going for them. You're listening to the Frankie files, FrankieFilesPodcast.com. They would say they're protecting children by raising them, you know, to fear God and to serve the Lord and be a good child and be a good Christian. So in their view that they think they are doing all the right things. So, you know, I've asked my parents this, my dad's dead now, but I've had this conversation with my mom and dad when they were, when he was still alive, you know, and they both said, look, we were, we were just trying to do the best that for you that we knew how at the time as Christians. And they're, you know, my mom's still a kind of a fundamentalist Christian and that they thought they were doing all the right things for all the right reasons. And so did I, as a dad, I thought that's what I was doing for my girls. You know, I thought I was protecting them from the evil world. You know, when I grew up, we didn't even have a television. We weren't, we were sheltered. We couldn't listen to rock and roll music. We, we were totally isolated in that bubble. And my parents thought they were protecting us. You didn't blend socially with kids in your peer group. Because I can remember vividly many, many times hanging around with my cousins who lived next door to me. We kind of grew up together, my two cousins, and they were not Christians. They weren't nothing like, you know, and I was always under this pressure 
to evangelize to them, to proselytize them. And I couldn't participate in the stuff they were participating in because I was different. I was supposed to be special. So I, I wasn't running around. I wasn't having sex. I wasn't smoking dope. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't swearing. And I was the freak. I was the, you know, I was the odd man out, but I was trying to save them, you know, but it, it just, it just socially isolated me from my peer group, really. A religion makes you get a pass is something, you know, that's super disturbing to me because I find that religion is accommodating to criminals, super accommodating. <laughs> They're cool with it. <laughs> so the grift, you know, I sent you a comical arter, article on Twitter today that said um, in Texas, they started doing a blood test to see if Jesus is in your blood. <laughs> comical, like a, the onion piece type. And... Um, and it's getting so weird. Like, I mean, you're right about, and if we can go into dominion theology a little, um, in the United States, I think it's pretty clear, maybe not to some, this is why we do these things, these podcasts. Um, but I think it's pretty clear to a lot of people who are paying attention that Christianity has attempted to take all the important positions, including the president for all its history. Um, only two have been Catholic, the rest Christian Protestant, and Catholic is still Christian. So so we have to keep this ruse up that, um, you know, there's only one religion or one God or maybe no gods. <laughs> um, you know, everyone's got different ideas and none of them are provable. No one's got the last word, but yet we've allowed in the United States for it to be predominant. Why? Why, Clint? Why, Dr. Clint? Is this happening? Can we not use logic? Is our critical thinking broken as a society? I often feel it is. I just feel like the dumbing down has not helped. Well, I mean, the ultimate example is the evangelical embrace of Donald Trump. You know, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? You've got a guy who's you know, three twice divorced. He's had numerous affairs, blah, blah, blah. Talks about, you know, groping women and, and sexually abusing, assaulting, you know, all the rest of it. That None of that mattered because he was uh, he was helping them to achieve what they thought they wanted to achieve. You know, so if they could do that and overlook all the stuff in his personal and public life, then that kind of says it all, doesn't it? And this is this is the whole thing. It comes down to Christian nationalism. You know, America, there's this it's long been a, a narrative in the background, even going back, you could trace it beyond, you know, the Civil War goes back before the 19th century. This sort of narrative that America was founded to be a Christian nation by Christians. You know, the pilgrims, the Puritans, they were Christians. They came from mostly England, but Europe as well. They founded America as Christians to be a Christian nation. And it's, you know, we've basically strayed from that path in the last 100, 150 years. And we need to get back to becoming a Christian nation again. That is one of the major drivers behind what you see going on politically. In fact, if you read um, Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead's book, uh, It's Taking America Back for God, 
they did a massive religious religion survey. And what they found in the Trump era was the number one driver for people voting for Donald Trump was Christian nationalism. So that that was the number one reason cited by people for voting for Trump. You know, so that that's a longstanding narrative in American history. And that's that's yeah, that's where the Dominion theology piece comes in, I think, because if Christians are supposedly mandated by God to take dominion in a political sense, that's where you start throwing out all the regular metrics for well, what does it mean to be loving and kind and what what a Christian what we might think a Christian's supposed to be. If you can achieve dominion, I mean, as examples going on right now, I mean, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and now you're seeing increasingly more draconian laws coming in off the back of that. And that was a long-term strategy by the Christian right going back probably 40 plus years, back to the early 1970s. They've been working at this for a very, very long time. They don't care about the collateral damage as long as, see, this Christian nationalist piece, They the argument is abortion is a national sin. It's stopping God from blessing America. So if we can stop abortions and make it illegal, we will then turn America back into a Christian nation and God will start blessing the country again. So they don't care about the damage as long as we get back to that Christian nation status again. Back to even there's two big issues. Another one is is slavery. So that's a that's a longstanding issue there with Christians who are they're forced to, you know, defend slavery in the South, in America, because if they argue, look, if if America was a Christian nation from the beginning, from its founding, and yet we own slaves, how could God bless America? How could we be a Christian nation and own slaves? And so the similar metric applies there. They've got to justify slave owning from the Bible, because of course the Bible condones slavery. So they, they can twist this argument around to say, owning slaves was okay, and that's what, you know, God God was okay with that. He was cool with that. That's why we were blessed and economically and in other ways. So we were a Christian nation, even though we own slaves. So that's how twisted the logic. And that goes back way before the 19th century. There were Christian pastors and theologians in, in seminaries in the South who wrote books, you know, defending slavery from the Bible before the Civil War. The fact the Bible condones slavery, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, not just passage, it's passages. You know, Old Testament Israel, it's in the law, the legal code that Israelites could own slaves. You know, you could take slaves from a nation that you went to, to war with and you conquered their people. You could enslave them, you know. And then in the New Testament, like the Apostle Paul talks in many of his letters, he'll, he'll write to slaves and he'll say, you know, slaves, obey your master's. Don't seek to be free. Don't seek to escape. You're serving your master, even if they're cruel to you, um, as unto the Lord. You know, so he's perpetuating the Roman slave system. He doesn't take a stand against it and say, no, this is an absolute evil. And then you find slave owners in the 19th century, they would quote those passages from Paul to their slaves and say, you see, it's in the Bible. You're supposed to submit and serve joyfully to your masters because that's how God's economy works. You, that's just how it works. That's how you set it up. I was mentioning way back in, you know, fundamentalism and liberal Christianity, there is that other stream. You know, there is the liberal Christian stream that's still very much alive today. There's a lot of traditions within Christianity. It's not a monolith. You know, if, if someone's listening to this and goes, oh, all Christians are all the same. No, no, no. 
absolutely not. There's there's liberal Christians and fundamentalist Christians. It's a spectrum. So there's a there's a whole stream of Christianity that is more egalitarian. So they would have women as pastors. They would have women as elders. Women could preach in a church. You know, they're much more affirming and welcoming and, and more liberal on that scale. So it's not fair to tar all of them with the same brush that the fundamentalists and the more conservative evangelicals could be tarred with. You know, so we have to be fair, I think, to I'm not I'm not defending Christianity. I'm just saying we have to be, you know, fair about it. And, you know, so I, on on the personal level, I was struggling with my own faith, you know, because of the rough go that we'd had at the church the last few years. So we were really burned and, and kind of harshed out off of that. So I had to sort through all that. But then I did my PhD actually on the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, and I did a ton of study, and I didn't, I hadn't really studied that book before in depth. And that book really kind of messed me up because it shows a portrait of God. If you read God as a character in the narrative, it's really messed up. <laughs> I mean, the stuff he does to the prophet Ezekiel, and it got me to question, if this God is the God I'm I've been worshiping supposedly and following and obeying and trying to love and stuff. It's like when I spoke to Stephen Mather, who we also um, did a show with on um, cult hackers, he, you know, 30 years of his time knocking on doors, you don't get it back. It's an amazing position you've placed yourself in as an ex uh, preacher and evangelical to to caution people of dangerous preachers and dangerous theology. How did you position, how did you come to make that pivot, which is, I applaud you. This is amazing to, to use the skills you re, you know, (laughs) obtained painfully. We'll put it (laughs) because for me, I have trouble worshiping any human. And I Mm -hmm. feel like it needs to be, for some reason, it needs to be reiterated that men, women or men, wrote everything that we are reading. Yeah. It went through a filter of a human. So it might not be the word of God. Right? Yes. That's a big question. Yeah. And where I, I had looked at the Bible as inspired and infallible and without error, you know, when you start questioning that, that's a big one as a Christian. You start questioning the Bible and a lot of cards start to fall. The whole house of cards tends to come tumbling down for a lot of people. But certainly okay. there are good acts and bad acts and people do horrible things right. and people end up in prison. You know, like, for example, I you know, look at the, the Catholic Church or other denominations, Southern Baptist denomination. You know, they create an environment whereby abusers know they are safe abusers of children, I should say, but certainly other kinds of abuses that go on. And they're the man of God. They're the preacher up front. They're the holy man. You know, they've got the hotline to God. So they get away with a lot and they know they'll probably be protected and the woman or the victim will be blamed for the abuse actually happening to them. You know, so it's created a long culture of abuses that have happened over the centuries, really. What we're experiencing is the repercussion of them not successfully being able to shut other religions, dangerous cults and religions down. Mm. It's almost like a backlash now. Um, Well, how do we interfere and how do we 
you know, stop abuse, but also allow freedom of religion. And I'm like, well, where is freedom from religion? Hmm. I know others have said it, it's not new, but, but it really is like, cause like even, um, my mother has said this many times, why aren't we allowed to leave? Why are we bothered? Why are people bothered for changing their minds mm-hmm. and deciding this doesn't fit for me? And, you know, why is there such a thing as fair game? Why are people bothered? You know, now, did you experience any of that or? Well, I mean, yeah, I lost most of my Christian friends. I mean, it wasn't as bad for me as it was for some people. Like you mentioned, fair gaming. I just talked right. to Chris Shelton. He's a friend of mine. He's an ex-Scientologist and he was absolutely shunned and, you know, had some fair gaming that happened to him, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. some cults are far more, you know, proactive about actually, you know, harming the, the ex-members, you know, yeah. we are, yeah, we're commodities. Like you say, when you get into the cult psychology, you mentioned how, you know, cults work you sometimes to death, you know, so many hours you can't, you're so tired and exhausted. You have, yeah. There's no time for critical thinking. You're too tired, yeah. basically, you know. It work you did almost to death. And this is my beef with Western beliefs, Western society. We never take the spirit or the feelings seriously. Hmm. We just smash everything down. It's not important. Yeah. You know? Western and especially Christian um, religion, it doesn't. It doesn't exist. It doesn't mm. allow the individual any growth. Yeah, I think that's true. But it's it's sort of a veneer of spirituality. You know, you mm-hmm. go in, like, for example, my experience going into a church service, hearing the, the music and getting caught up in the emotional experience and praying and in some cases speaking in tongues and things like that. You know, these are like ecstatic experiences. So you walk away from those things and you're on a high, you're on like a mountaintop experience. So you think mm-hmm. you've had an experience of God, you had a move of the spirit, you know, and you feel something you definitely do there. I'm not saying that nothing doesn't happen. It really does. It takes you on an emotional journey, you know, but it was when I started studying uh, Robert J. Lifton thought reform mm-hmm. and the psychology of totalism, that book completely changed my life because he, he breaks down mm-hmm. how cults actually do, you know, mystical manipulation and milieu control. And it's all part of this package that you enter into that takes you on a journey but it seems spontaneous, but it's actually all carefully choreographed and it's it's he calls it planned spontaneity. And that's really how cults and churches operate. They take you on a journey and you think you've had an experience of the divine, but it's mystical manipulation. But it is the submersive experience, and we do experience something, quote, mystical in a group. Sure. But then you can also get that at the opera. I go back to Lifton again because he talks about doubling the experience of doubling. And so oh, it yes. is especially relevant for people who were who came into the group as adults. They were not born in like you and me, but people who came in and they had to create a second self, a religious self, and it suppresses their authentic self. And that's the doubling that Lifton talks about, you know, to fit into the group, to to fit into the group's norms and things like that. That's where you suppress your authentic identity. And I can see how that would happen to me. Part of that was enjoying the music and the worship and being part of that whole thing. That was my religious mm-hmm. self. You know, I was I was caught up in this this movement, as you, as, as you say, a submersive movement. 
um, but it was actually at the at the cost of my authentic self. I was convincing myself I was worshiping God and you know all the rest of it, but it, nothing was happening other than an immersive experience. I never stopped playing music, you know. <laughs> I just play secular rock and roll now, you know. So I was a drummer. I played in Christian metal bands and I played on tons of worship bands and churches and for youth groups. And we traveled to Belgium and Germany and you know did gigs over in Europe and all that. So we were doing a lot of a lot of stuff you know rocking for jesus really so it's nice when we can take the things that were always us and drop the religion away from it and enjoy our lives that's it like you're a musician what kind of music do you play now oh rock and blues i'm a metal drummer from way back in the 80s you know <laughs> there are positive things i mean i learned to play the drums so i could play on worship teams and play in christian rock bands so mm -hmm. but the skill is exactly the same you know, whether I'm playing ACDC or Motorhead or a, a worship song, it's, I'm still playing the drums, you know? So like you say, I stripped the religion piece away and I can still play the drums and I love it. I, and, you know, I'm thankful for the fact that I did learn how to play the drums, even though I don't, I'm not rocking for Jesus anymore. You brought up in another interview, um, the family yes. documentary. I thought I'd mention that because it's quite worth the watch it really is um they really reinvented in this documentary and i don't have the names of the um director in front of me yeah but it was written by jeff I... charlotte that's that's the name that people need any you just come out with a new book called the undertow that i haven't read yet but it's it's kind of along that same line i never heard the term dominion theology before which is strange because i studied theology for so many years but that's where i first came across that term that's what led me to start researching it and going down that rabbit hole, the fundamentalists would say, my way is the only true way. My truth is the capital T truth. You know, that's, that's why the fundamentalists were so militant, you know, because they believed they had the truth. And on the liberals and everybody else, they were wrong. They were going to hell. It was a different gospel, different Christianity altogether. You know, so you can see that strain running through a lot of the hardcore Dominion theology what's called opus day which is another it's a it's a kind of a catholic dominion theology movement it's not exactly the same as what you see in american evangelicalism but it is a it's a sort of like i say a catholic dominion theology piece it comes out of the the spanish civil war era so there's some it's some interesting stuff that went on there but it's it's very much a catholic movement but like guys like William Barr, when he was he was the attorney general under Donald Trump, he's an Opus Dei member, you know. So there's a lot of pe a lot of high placed Catholics in a lot of the well, a lot of the uh, Supreme Court justices. They're Catholic, you know. And there's questions as to whether or not they're affiliated with Opus Dei. So, yeah, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories, but there's definitely a connection between some of these people in high political office. There's another half to this conversation. You've got to go over to MindShift Podcast to hear the second half. We thank Dr. Haycock for joining us and sharing his story and info. There will be a second part to this when Clint interviews me for his podcast. Date to be announced. Stay tuned. See the MindShift Podcast info in the show notes and enjoy what he has to offer in his easy-to-listen-to buttery tones. He's a great speaker. Until next time, keep critical thinking. You're listening to The Frankie Files. 
FrankieFilesPodcast.com. Cults, coercion, and sexuality in society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more.